Welcome to Fierce City, a podcast where we delve into the stories, lives, places and events that built the greatest capital city in the world. I'm Satu. And I'm PJ. And we are your hosts on this journey to discover the lesser known history of London. Today we're going to talk about a very well-known person from London's history, Sherlock Holmes. Whether it's the original stories, or the recent BBC or Hollywood adaptations, you've probably watched or read something about his legendary crime-solving skills. Without wanting to throw shade on any international adaptations of Sherlock Holmes and Dr Watson, to me, Sherlock Holmes without London is like a fish out of water. Conjuring up an image of Sherlock in your head almost transports you back to the cobbled streets of Victorian London. If you could play top trumps of London characters, you'd be onto a winner if you had a Sherlock card in your hands. But what was the London of the 1890s, when the Holmes stories began, really like? And what about the great Sherlock Holmes that we think we know? Well, in this special episode, we're changing up the usual Fierce City format and posing some true or false questions about the world's most famous consulting detective and his city. Now, nothing is more fun and exciting than a disclaimer. So, before we get going, we're going to set out our stall about what we're going to be regarding as true or false when it comes to Sherlock Holmes. There are whole societies that have existed for decades, and great academics who've dedicated their whole lives to all things Sherlock Holmes. We've tried to take our information directly from those people where possible, and we're presenting the truth of Sherlock based on the canon of material that the author of Sherlock Holmes, Arthur Conan Doyle, produced. In case you've never heard of Sherlock Holmes, you can come out from under your rock, remortgage it, and invest in the full set of Sherlock Holmes stories as soon as possible, or listen to the absolutely peerless audiobook as read by Stephen Fry. One of the earliest fictional detectives, Holmes can solve a crime just by looking at someone, using a chain of logical reasoning to eliminate the impossible, and therefore arrive at what must be true. Now, as the great man said, there is nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. Let's see if we can sort the true from the false. Albion, Sherlock Holmes was addicted to opium. Hmm, I think true. I'm afraid it's false. It's a common misconception that Holmes was addicted to opium, so don't beat yourself up about it. In The Sign of Four, the second Holmes story, Dr Watson is out looking for a friend of his who has gone missing, when to his astonishment he finds Holmes in one of the bunks at an opium den. But Sherlock quickly explains that he's there undercover and that he wasn't in fact partaking. Watson is obviously worried that Sherlock's in denial about his addiction, but eventually sees that he's not under the influence. So opium addiction seems unlikely. But it is true to say that Holmes's substance of choice was cocaine. Cocaine was brought to Europe in the mid-18th century, but it didn't become popular until an eye doctor named Collar began to use it as an anaesthetic. It was not illegal in Victorian times whilst Holmes was using it, but he would have had to have bought it on the black market, as pure cocaine wasn't sold to the general public. Holmes was noted by Watson to take cocaine by injecting a solution three times a day. This habit was confirmed in The Sign of Four and was alluded to in other books. His use of cocaine seemed to be motivated in part by boredom, but it was described as a bad habit, along the lines of his bad habit of rising late in the morning. In the later stories, Watson says he's kicked the habit. 
so I don't think we can consign Sherlock Holmes into the category of a famous drug addict. The fellow just had some vices, like injecting liquid cocaine. (laughs) On to the next fact. Sherlock Holmes actually helped engineer the first ever underground railway. Can it be true? No, it's false. But, as we all know, the London Underground was the first ever underground railway system in the world, and Baker Street itself was the only station that was entirely underground. In as far back as 1854, an Act of Parliament was passed enabling the Metropolitan Railway Company to construct the world's first underground railway, which was to be between Paddington and the City of London. The Metropolitan Railway Company's chief engineer, John Fowler, started construction in 1860 for an underground railway line, digging trenches and then covering them back over to form a line which steam-powered trains could run from Paddington, which was then called Bishop's Road, all the way to Farringdon. Baker Street Station, which was one of the only seven stations on this first ever line, opened on the 10th of January 1863, when Sherlock Holmes himself would only have been nine years old. The platform was entirely underground and can still be seen today in all of its glory. If you go to Baker Street Station and you go to take the Circle or District Line, you'll go down some stairs into a two-platform underground brick barrel vault. There, you'll be standing in the station exactly as it appeared back in the Victorian times. And it doesn't take much imagination to be transported back there, watching the first ever underground train pull up into the platform. What may be slightly less joyous to conjure up in your mind is all the poisonous gases which would be filling the platform from the steam engine. This led the underground train builders to stop building their platforms underneath the ground until they figured out how to stop using steam. It then took another 43 years for the Bakerloo line to open at Baker Street, with its station doors opening on the 10th of March 1906. The Bakerloo line was designed to take passengers from Baker Street to Waterloo, and it was originally called the snappy title Baker Street and Waterloo Railway, but it didn't take long for an abbreviation, which was Bakerloo as we know it now, to appear in an evening news headline, and it quickly became officially adopted as the name for the underground line. Following on from PJ's underground fact, Holmes and Watson never actually used the London Underground well, if he was nine when it came out, I'm going to think no. <laughs> um, he did. Uh, it was only in one story, but the tube itself becomes a player in the case of the adventure of the Bruce Partington plans, when an unlucky young clerk is found dead next to the tracks in Aldgate tube station. The only witness to the murder could barely see out of the carriage due to the thick London fog. In the dead man's pocket are the plans to a top-secret submarine, but no underground ticket. Did he leap the barriers like someone who has just turned 18 and refuses to pay full price to get to Pudding Mill Lane? Only Holmes can solve it, and he does so in the smoking room of the Charing Cross Hotel. So not only did Holmes and Watson in fact use the tube, they made many journeys to strange places such as the continent, the Great Moor where the Hound of the Baskervilles stalked, and Devon. They caught the train from Paddington or Charing Cross, always first class. From London Bridge, they sped to the glorious southeast and took in Blackheath, Beckenham and Norwood. But their signature way to travel is to pile out of 221B and hail the nearest handsome cab. These horse-drawn taxis are named after their inventor, Mr Handsome. They're light, springy cabs with space for two people, maybe three, under a little shelter and the driver sitting high up behind them. 
they can be pulled by just one horse, unlike bigger, heavier carriages, which is lucky, because right in the middle of the 1890s comes the Great Manure Crisis. At this time, there were 50,000 horses pulling various vehicles around London, including buses, although Holmes never deigned to board one of those. During the horse manure crisis of 1894, the Times glumly wrote that in 50 years' time, every street in London will be buried under nine feet of manure. But luckily this didn't come true, thanks to the invention of a lovely, clean, blameless form of transport named the motor car. Conan Doyle got behind the new invention, and in 1905, he got one of the very first speeding tickets for driving at 26 miles an hour. Sherlock Holmes actually holds the Guinness Book of Records title as the most portrayed literary human character in film and TV. Um, I can believe that. Is it a trick question? Human character? No, no, it is straightforwardly true. Okay. In 2012, Holmes was awarded the title beating out the likes of Hamlet, Cinderella, Robin Hood, Romeo and Juliet and Tarzan to the number one spot. Sherlock has been portrayed over 250 times and despite being more recent than most of his rivals, he beats them all by a comfortable margin. The first known cinema appearance of Sherlock Holmes was in the 1890s when he was used just actually to show some newfangled camera work. The movie was only a minute long and was called Sherlock Holmes Baffled. The clip, which you can still watch now on YouTube, features Holmes walking in on a thief who disappears into thin air, only to keep disappearing and reappearing, perplexing the young and quite handsome Sherlock. (laughs) Since then, Sherlock Holmes has been played by over 80 different actors, including the classic portrayal by Basil Rathbone, as well as Sir Christopher Lee, Charlton Heston, Peter O'Toole, Roger Moore and John Cleese, not to mention Cumberbatch. And it doesn't look like the portrayals will stop any time soon. Sherlock Holmes as a character is now in the public realm, meaning you don't need permission from anybody to immortalise him on screen. Sherlock is arguably at the height of its popularity, with a hit US TV show, a beloved BBC series, and a rogue Robert Downey Jr. on the silver screen. My next question. Victorian London was a terrifying hotbed of constant murder. (laughs) What do you think? Yes. (laughs) It was obviously not, or everyone would be dead. The foggy, dingy reputation of Victorian London and the superabundance of crimes for Holmes to solve does make it sound like people were constantly at each other's throats. But I think we have a tendency to view the past as intrinsically grislier than it really was. And in fact, the Victorians themselves were more afraid than they needed to be. The newspapers stoked the public's fear of being murdered in their beds or on the street corner. The press sensationalised every possible story to feed its readership. The Times alone ran over 1,000 articles a year on murders in the 1880s and 90s. There were about 325 murders per year in the whole of England and Wales at this time, so each got a decent amount of column inches. I'm going to give you more murder stats. By 1900, there was about one murder per 100,000 people per year in London, all right? That's down from six per 100,000 in 1700 and a massive 45 per 100,000 per year in 1300. So people were very angry in the 14th century. And according to Google Books data, the best data, more books with the word murder in the title were published in 1887 than in any other year since novels were invented, 
1887 was the year the first home story, A Study in Scarlet, came out, and it was the year before the Whitechapel murders began. And you should say that you're not getting any money from Google Data <laughs> or an ad-free podcast. <laughs> On to my fact. Sherlock Holmes never uttered the immortal words, Elementary, my dear Watson. I'm pretty sure he did. In fact, he didn't. What he did say was, All this is amusing, though rather elementary, but I must go back to business, Watson. So, close enough. It seems that the phrase, Elementary, my dear Watson, begun to be used in periodicals to basically mean, That thing is straightforwardly easy to understand. And that was eventually misquoted as having been thought to be in the books originally. Hmm. Another quick one from me. Dr. Watson is actually older than Sherlock Holmes. I think he is older. And you'll be right. Good. Dr. Watson was born in 1852 and Sherlock Holmes was born two years later in 1854. I've got a quick one then. Sherlock Holmes was a short man, being under five foot seven inches tall, which is in fact not that short. And I would say five foot seven is definitely not short <laughs> for no personal reasons whatsoever. Um, well, it's false. I don't know how to put this to you, but Holmes was a very tall man. He towered over Watson and was described by him as being over six foot. My fact, Sherlock Holmes didn't go to university. I'd love it if he, if he didn't go to university. Tell me he didn't. I'm afraid he did. Okay. In the story of The Adventure of the Glorious Scott, Sherlock Holmes mentions his university experience. He doesn't tell us specifically where he went, but in the 19th century, a reference to university had to mean either Oxford or Cambridge. Various scholars have fought to prove that Sherlock went to their alma mater, but the argument seems to be won by the Oxford Dons, who pointed out that when Sherlock visited Cambridge to solve a crime in the story The Adventure of the Missing Three Quarter, he seems unfamiliar with the geography of Cambridge and calls it an inhospitable town. A fashion-related fact for you to think about. Sherlock's famous deerstalker hat did not appear until the final Sherlock story. I think it must have appeared earlier than that. It does not appear in the final Sherlock story. It does not appear in any of the stories. Despite Sherlock never being specifically referred to in the stories as wearing a deerstalker hat, his image came alive in the illustrations which accompanied them, which is what we have to thank for the well-loved image of Sherlock in a hat with a brim at the front and back and the ear flaps tied in a bow on top. Sidney Paget was responsible for the illustrations, and when Conan Doyle wrote that Watson met Holmes on the train platform wearing a closely fitted cloth cap, he illustrated this as the famous hat, and an icon was born. But Holmes did not exclusively wear the deerstalker. In fact, in the illustrations, it was not even his favourite hat. Holmes aficionado David Martin Dakin went through all of the illustrations, and in order of most worn, it goes to Trilby at number one, the top hat at number two, and then the deerstalker and bowler hat in joint third place. Great hat facts there, Satie. <laughs> My fact is, you can visit the real location of 221B Baker Street today. Well, you proved during your previous Baker Street facts that you can, so I'm saying yes. And I'm saying it's probably false, I'm afraid. What? 221B Baker Street is obviously one of the most famous addresses in London, and its fictional resident, Sherlock, defines the whole area around it now. As you leave the tube... There are silhouettes of Holmes in his deerstalker hat on the walls of Baker Street tube station as you arrive. But 
221B was, like Holmes, probably fiction. In the 1890s, Baker Street numbering actually only went up to 85. Keen Sherlock scholars have been arguing for decades about which house on Baker Street Conan Doyle really took inspiration from as his spot for Sherlock and Watson's first floor rooms. Speculation ranges from 21 Baker Street, 27 Baker Street and 61 Baker Street. A popular theory is that the modern day 109 Baker Street is the famous inspirational location. Today, this building retains its Victorian facade, but it lives as offices tucked between a post office and a betting shop. Another favourite is 31 Baker Street, due to the research of a man named Bernard Davies, who got a map from 1894 of Baker Street showing all of the front doors and the lamps. From a forensic analysis of the books and this map, and tracing Watson and Holmes' steps, he concluded that it must be 31 Baker Street. The buildings at 31 Baker Street, as they were in 1894, have long since been demolished, and now the land hosts the headquarters for the House of Fraser. <sighs> Following the renumbering of Baker Street in the middle of the 20th century, it now extends all the way up to 247 Baker Street, and therefore the real 221B as it stands today, is the site of a grand Art Deco building, which was the Abbey National Bank headquarters. Abbey National embraced their famous number and employed a letter writer to respond to all those people across the world who wrote to the famous Sherlock Holmes at 221B. The writer responded as secretary to Sherlock Holmes and was careful to keep the spirit of Sherlock alive. In 1951, they actually hosted a Sherlock Holmes exhibition for the Festival of Britain, and then this exhibition was then bought by a publican in 1957 and moved it to a pub in Charing Cross, which then became known as the Sherlock Holmes. Abbey National sold their building on Baker Street, and its new owners didn't care to keep up the tribute. So in 1990, an ex-boarding house just a few doors down at what is actually 239 Baker Street, got special permission from the city of Westminster to rename itself 221B, and it became the Sherlock Holmes Museum. It keeps its authentic Victorian facade, and next door you can find Hudson's Tea Rooms. But don't ruin it for the tourists who queue up every day to take photos by the front door. The secret's safe with us. On a different topic, absolutely Everyone smoked in Victorian London, true or false? Well, obviously false. It is half true, I'm going to say. You're right. Obviously not everyone smoked because women didn't smoke. But because all men smoked, I'm going to say it's half true. Holmes and Watson are both virtually welded to their pipes and Holmes calls a particularly sticky conundrum a three-pipe problem. He also smoked cigarettes when he was upset and cigars, which he kept in a slipper. Smoking is such a useful and widely practised voice that he has written a book on 140 different types of cigars, cigarettes and forms of tobacco, and how to use the ashes as a clue. Victorian men smoked like chimneys, which is why they invented the smoking jacket. It kept the piles of ash off their clothes and made them smell less gross when they rejoined the ladies. Middle class and upper class women generally didn't smoke until the 20th century, after cigarettes became the big thing from the 1880s onwards. Queen Victoria was obviously highly against it. The writer and socialite Lady Dorothy Neville wrote in 1907, to smoke in Hyde Park, even up to comparatively recent years, was looked upon as absolutely unpardonable, 
while smoking anywhere with a lady would have been classed as an almost disgraceful social crime. Lady Dorothy knew a bit about social crimes, as she was quite a scandal magnet in her youth. Working class women, as ever, were completely overlooked by the upper classes and were merrily puffing away alongside the men ever since tobacco came over from the New World. The famous drooping pipe of Sherlock Holmes did not specifically feature in the books and probably has actor William Gillette to thank. He played Sherlock over 1,300 times on stage. If that doesn't cement a symbol of a character, I don't know what does. Sherlock Holmes caught criminals by checking their fingerprints. Yeah, I'm going to say that's true. It's a classic criminal-catching method. He did, but he was a bit ahead of his time, and he solved just as many mysteries by checking their footprints. Arthur Conan Doyle had Holmes using fingerprints quite a bit before the police adopted it in real life, in 1901. There were other methods competing to be the one that could tell one person from another without fail, and one of these methods was called bertillonage, involved measuring lots of different parts of the body, like the ears, and apparently it worked. It was just incredibly time-consuming and obviously prone to quite a lot of human error. My fact. Holmes was helped out in his crime-solving by a gang of plucky street urchins. That sounds too Dickensian, I'm going to say no. (laughs) No, it is true! Even though it is very Dickensian, Sherlock's gang of helpful urchins was called the Baker Street Irregulars. A ragged band of young boys, it's unclear where exactly they live, how old they are, or whether they ever go to school, even though it was the law by the 1890s that children had to go to school up to age 12. We know that Sherlock pays them a shilling a day, which was very generous and would have been welcome, I imagine. About one third of Londoners lived in absolutely grinding poverty. Housing was overcrowded and slum families lived in a single room. A slum in North Kensington called Notting Dale was nicknamed Hell on Earth. 43 of every 100 children born there died before they were one. This was a sort of city many children were born into in the Victorian times and they had to find a way to contribute to the finances of the family. Some were mudlarks who sifted the mud of the Thames to see if they could find anything of value. Some begged, and some were pickpockets. Children could be sentenced to hard labour for stealing, so it was a very risky business. There was no social mobility at this time, or virtually none, so if you were born poor, you died poor. Carrying on on a cheery topic then. Sorry. Sherlock Holmes loved to text. (laughs) That's quite a different topic. Um... That's obviously ludicrous. So no, Sherlock Holmes did not love to text. Well, I'm going to say it is actually kind of true. The texting of Victorian London was using the telegram. (laughs) And the telegram was a service which was designed to pack as many words into as short a message as possible by abbreviating them. Sorry, abbreviating them. Watson says that Holmes is never known to write when a telegram would serve the purpose. He made heavy use of the snappy format of the telegram, stop, to communicate with his clients and informants, stop. (laughs) You could use telegraph wires to send messages to the continent, the USA, or all the way to India. In theory, you could send a telegram and get a response in just five minutes. But as anyone who has glumly stared at the blue ticks for 18 hours knows, theory and practice are quite different. For those who prefer to write at more length, the postal service was so efficient that you could post a letter in the morning and have a reply by lunchtime. Post in London came 12 times a day. 
Holmes and Watson actually only acknowledge the existence of the telephone once, when they locate a man named Garideb in the phone directory and call him up as part of a mystery surrounding his name. I have a bonus question about telegrams. Do you want to hear it? Yes. When did the telegram service end in Britain? You don't know. You don't know. It's a lot later than any year you could possibly name. It's 1982. The US didn't stop sending telegrams until 2006, which is so late. And you could send a telegram in India until 2013, which was the last country in the world to abandon the service. So you no longer get a telegram from the Queen. You get, like, an email, I guess. Another fact from me. Watson and Holmes were actually regular users of Turkish bathhouses together. I feel like you're asking me a different question than the one that is on the surface. So I'm going to say they were regulars at Turkish bathhouses. Well, you're right to hear my tone, as the friendship between Holmes and Watson has often been queried. And looking at things with a modern lens, a couple of well-to-do single men living together in central London has a whole different slant to it. But... I think we can safely debunk any theory that Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson were any kind of lovers. I respectfully disagree. Um, I read all of the stories in quick succession, which may have led to me seeing things where they were not things. And I accuse you of seeing, but not observing, as Sherlock would say. I found myself feeling like they were more than just friends. I know it's just my modern eye picking out instances that would probably have been invisible to the pure and innocent Victorians and pre-World War people, but I think it's in there. And I brought a quote to illustrate my point. PJ, will you be the Sherlock to my Watson? Sure. This is Watson's narrative of being attacked by a criminal. I felt a sudden hot sear, as if a red-hot iron had been pressed to my thigh. There was a crash as Holmes's pistol came down on the man's head. I had a vision of him sprawling upon the floor with blood running down his face while Holmes rummaged him for weapons. Then my friend's wiry arms were round me and he was leading me to a chair. You're not hurt, Watson. For God's sake, say that you're not hurt. It was worth a wound. It was worth many wounds to know the depth of loyalty and love which lay behind that cold mask. The clear, hard eyes were dimmed for a moment and the firm lips were shaking. For the one and only time, I caught a glimpse of a great heart as well as of a great brain. All my years of humble but single-minded service culminated in that moment of revelation. It's nothing, Holmes. It's a mere scratch. He had ripped up my trousers with his pocket knife. You are right. He cried with an immense sense of relief. It's quite superficial. His face set like flint as he glared at our prisoner, who was sitting up with a dazed face. By the Lord, it is as well for you. If you had killed Watson, you would have not got out of this room alive. While reading that, I have realised that Watson has just said this is the first time he'd ever sensed emotion from Sherlock. Although, in the Victorian age, they did have a type of relationship, usually between people of the same gender, called the romantic friendship, that was like a special best friendship, with some of the trappings of romance, like giving gifts and like pet names and kissing each other... Some modern people say Sherlock is asexual, which doesn't preclude him having a great platonic love for Watson. And all of this might be totally anachronistic, but don't forget, we have learnt that Conan Doyle knew Oscar Wilde. And in fact, The Sign of Four, the second Holmes novel, was commissioned at a dinner at the Langham Hotel in 1889, which was also attended by Wilde, and then he was inspired to write The Picture of Dorian Gray. Whilst I do love some Oscar Wilde trivia, Satter and I are going to have to agree to disagree on this one. 
Sherlock and Dr. Watson did activities that do look more than just friendly, but in fact fun things like the use of bathhouses were undoubtedly innocent. Turkish baths in Victorian London were a trendy new fad. Rather than sit in cold tubs at home, people could visit baths, which were like steam rooms, to wash and relax. Over 100 Turkish baths were opened in Greater London from 1856 onwards, and the Leicester Square Odeon stands now on what was once a great Victorian bathhouse. If you want to see what these look like today, you can go to Bishopsgate by Liverpool Street, and there's the Victorian bathhouse which has been preserved in all its glory, although rather than bathing there, it's now a place to go for cocktails, and you can use it for private dining. I'll do another fact. Sherlock Holmes was originally just a story in a Christmas annual. Must have been a very high quality Christmas annual, if so. What, like a children's Christmas annual? Well, no, but it was actually true. His first ever appearance was in 1887 in Beaton's Christmas Annual, which featured the short story of a study in Scarlet. The Beaton name was made famous in Victorian times because of Mrs Beaton's Book of Household Management, which came out in 1861. The book was one of the first of its kind to include recipes with a list of ingredients at the beginning and set out the whole body of English cookery and household practice under one title. It was often referred to as the housekeeping bible and Mrs Beaton was a real person who wrote the book when she was just 21. Beaton had various other publications and the Christmas annual was just one of them. Because of the Beaton name it was very popular and although three editors rejected Arthur Conan Doyle's first Sherlock Holmes story, it was Mr Beaton that gave Sherlock Holmes a chance. The last Sherlock Holmes story was published in 1904. Mm, That seems early for me, I'm going to say false. The last Holmes story did in fact appear in 1927, that late. It was published in the Strand magazine, where he'd first found proper fame after upgrading from the Beaton's Christmas annual. Along the way, Sherlock prevented state secrets from falling into the wrong hands in the First World War, in a story called The Last Bow. This was published in 1917, but it's the last story in the fictional chronology. All the later stories are set back in the rolling fog, urchin-haunted streets and cosy fireside of the peak Holmesian age of the 1880s and 90s. So moving on to Holmes's end, he actually retired and became a beekeeper. Um, false. It's true. He eventually got tired of the detecting game and he went to live in Sussex, where he kept bees and wrote a book about their care. I have a quick fire one. Mine is PJ is the Sherlock of this friendship. Do not answer, it is false. Satu is obviously the Sherlock. Um, we'll reluctantly agree with you anyway. Dr Watson is so much cooler. <laughs> oh. So that brings us to the end of our facts on Sherlock. He may have been fictional, but he's so important in shaping the imaginary and the real London. If you drink in the Sherlock Holmes, you can commute into Baker Street, or enjoy any modern detective thriller, you're actually engaging with the legacy of Conan Doyle's invention. As well as providing a record of Victorian homes, ideas and behaviours, the story's a pure bliss to read. Whenever you're in need of a warm bath of a book, Turn up the central heating, light the figurative cigar and settle down for an hour of nostalgic pleasure with Sherlock Holmes and Dr Watson. Thank you for listening to Fear City, telling the tales of our very favourite city in the world and our home, London. If you like our podcast, then please subscribe or write us a review. 
You can also email us at londonhistorypodcast at gmail.com if you want to get in touch or you're a Sherlockian who wants to tell us what we got wrong in this episode. Or you can tweet us at Fierce City Pod. Fierce City was written and produced by the two voices you have heard. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.